0: So the episode this week has actually been quite a long time in the making and came about from some broader conversations within our team about the stories we tell. The gig economy is such a global phenomenon in all of its different forms, be it cloud work, ride hailing, couriering, platforms operate over massive spatial scales. And just as the names of many of the platforms stay the same as you move from country to country, so too do many of the issues faced by workers. There is commonality and shared experience. But that being said, I think that the discourse surrounding the gig economy is inordinately shaped by the experiences of gig workers in the global north. I think when most people think about gig work, they don't automatically think of a worker in Lagos, or Shenzhen, but in New York or London. And these kinds of experiences are privileged. They become the norm. They shape our understanding and they become the lens through which we understand the forces within the gig economy. I think this dominance results from the way in which different workers are able to participate in the discourse of the gig economy and the way in which we tell stories about it. So with this in mind, this week on the Fair Work podcast, we're going to India to hear the story of Vineyard, a worker based in Bengaluru. I think before we start, it's important to note that whilst this story is about an individual worker on a specific platform, the conditions are largely representative of the conditions in many areas of the gig economy. In our 2020 India rankings, the majority of platforms didn't score above 2 out of 10 and the two biggest food delivery platforms both scored 1 out of 10 each. We could have made this same podcast for any of the other major platforms operating in India. Okay, so that's enough from me. I'll be back at the end. But for now, I'm going to hand over to my colleague, Monica Nirakonda, for this week's episode.
1: Karnataka, located in the southwest of India, is home to around 64 million people. It's known as the tech hub of India, home to many of the country's largest technology companies. But it is also a city marked by huge inequality, and beyond the high-rise offices, there is a number of people using their smartphones and computers to make a living in the gig economy. I'm Monica Neerakonda, and on this episode of the Fair Work podcast, we hear from Vinod, a gig worker based in Bengaluru. We hear his story of working for the gig economy platform, Swiggy. What's it like moving to the city to work as a delivery rider? How do you navigate providing for your family and the costs associated with your work? And what happens when a global pandemic brings your work to a standstill?
2: So
3: I initially used to live in Gulbarga. I came to Bangalore in uh, 2016, 2017. A friend of mine uh, worked in the city. Since I had completed my degree, he offered me a job as a cashier uh, in a store and I agreed. Uh, So he referred me for the job, I got it and it went well for a year. After a year, I wanted to try working as a salesman since it paid better. So I got a job in a mall and I worked there for a month and a half. Uh, There were salespeople from multiple brands at the store where I worked and one of them told me Uh, that they work part-time on Swiggy at night. Uh, He asked me uh, what I do at night, and I said I stay at home uh, uh, like normal. He said I can work at night also. I asked what the job was, and he said you can work on Swiggy doing deliveries. He asked me if I had a bike and a license. I said I had neither. But I had uh, one year of uh, provident Fund saved from my job at the mall, So I continued working at this job until uh, the PF amount was released to me. I used the money along with the loan and bought myself a bike. I asked around about Swiggy and most people said that you can do it. It's all right. Uh, You can earn forty to fifty thousand a month easily. So I got myself referred uh, and got the Swiggy app and joined.
1: Swiggy is one of India's largest online food delivery platforms, operating in over 500 cities across the country. Delivery riders work through a smartphone app which allows them to access delivery jobs.
3: When I started the Swiggy job, it was good. I took leave from work and worked on Swiggy from morning to evening. I got to understand the income I could make from this. So I left my salesman job and continued with Swiggy. It was good. My family has come from complete poverty. You would know that in uh, North Karnataka, there are no jobs, there's nothing. My father is old and I am the eldest child. I somehow landed in Bangalore with the help of a friend. They pay only four to five thousand a month in my town. Here you get paid at least fifteen to sixteen thousand. This is a big amount for us. As I worked, I was able to pay off my family debt including the debt for my sister's wedding, which was uh, 3 to uh, 3.5 lakhs. I came to Bangalore and I worked on Swiggy and was able to pay off this debt.
1: Vinod has worked for Swiggy for three years now, completing around 30 orders and covering 150 kilometers every day. This last year has been particularly difficult, as his work has been radically changed by the impacts of the pandemic. India went into lockdown on the 25th of March last year and the effects on Vinod's work were
2: immediate.
3: During the lockdown, it was very tough. My father insisted that I return home or that he would come here. So I left at 10.30 at night, the the day the lockdown was announced. Uh, We took uh, our bikes and we left. Uh, I was working on Swiggy at that time. It took us 14 hours on the bike to reach home. My town is 625 kilometers from here. We had to choose our route carefully as vehicles were being stopped. We decided to stick to traveling within Karnataka itself and avoid crossing over to the other states.
1: When the lockdown was announced, Vinod was left with no source of income. Unlike other employers who offer workers financial support when people were left unable to work, Swiggy did not offer any assistance to affected delivery riders, leaving them in a position of massive financial insecurity as they grappled with the changes to the economy brought about by the pandemic.
3: If they gave us something, I would have been very happy. When everyone else had to stay home, they had a salary. They should have given us at least... A thousand rupees a week for those with a Swiggy ID. We trusted Swiggy and worked for them. Our daily income comes from Swiggy. I have no other income. They should have had a list of all the Swiggy boys who have been continuously logged in and should have given them some money. If you were a software engineer or if you worked in a company then you all got some money during the lockdown sitting at home. As an example, I worked for a year in a mall in Bangalore. Even though the mall closed, my colleagues got paid half their salary. If Swiggy similarly had given us some money, our family needs would have been met. They did nothing for me and that made me very sad. My grandfather has a small farm where I helped out for a month during the lockdown. I didn't get any income from it, but I had a little bit of savings and just as they ran dry, the lockdown stopped and I quickly came back to Bangalore and got onto the Swiggy app the moment I came back.
1: After a month and a half hour of work, Vinod immediately started working again after returning to Bangalore, and the source of income it provided was a big help to his financial situation.
3: During Covid, my dad asked me to stop. He said, everyone is coming back to town, you should come back too. So I went back to my town, and I was there for a month and a half, and when the roads opened up, I returned to Bangalore immediately. Everybody at home was just sitting idle and we, were starting, we started going into debt again. Swiggy was really helpful again. Nobody used to come out of their homes and they were all ordering on Swiggy. We didn't have any problems. We wore a mask, sanitized our hands and looked after our health. And we were able to work even during COVID times. Swiggy called us a few times and told us that it's compulsory to wear a mask. They also told us that they were grateful that we were brave enough to be working in these times. We had support from the customer care. There were still a few customers that didn't behave well. You must give me the food since we've paid you, they used to tell us, even when we were unable to deliver due to road closures. But with some courage and keeping our fears at bay, we did some work during COVID times. Then, orders were all long distances. We were still making income, but we had to now go 20 kilometers and they gave us 300 rupees. This is good, but when coming back, we come back empty, so it's a loss for us. If we got 10 such orders, 3 orders paid for fuel itself, so we were left only with pay from 8 orders during time times. But there were fewer boys back then, so there was a good amount of orders to go around at least.
1: But as the lockdown measures eased, more drivers came back to work and the number of orders available slowly dried up. As a means to increase his income, Vinod has had to come up with new strategies to circumvent the commissions taken by the platform.
3: I've reduced using Swiggy since the number of boys have increased. But I've tried to directly keep contact with a few customers. How it works is... Uh, On an occasion, somebody's son, or somebody's daughter, or their family, somebody leaves a file at home, then we get an order on Swiggy, and we deliver the order. Or someone would want us to deliver food from their home. In these instances, we give our contact number directly to the customer and tell them, Madam, pay me the same amount that you're paying Swiggy, and I'll come and deliver what you need. You can pay me after the delivery, no worries. They say, sure. If you are going to deliver, it's better. I can call you half an hour before and you can come and deliver. Like this, I have three to four customers. Only then is my income stable. Because Swiggy is a business. They want their profits. They take 100 rupees from a customer and give us 40 rupees. So if they are skimming more than half, is it fair? Within the 40 rupees, we have to take care of petrol, going and coming back. So because of this, I have been contacting customers directly so that I have a side business. I asked the customer, sir, what is the amount you paid on the app? They said we paid Rs 190 rupees. I was shocked. They took Rs 190 rupees from them and gave me Rs 90 rupees. I was sad when I got to know about this and I have not done duty since then. It's been a week since I logged in. My family runs because of this job. Now I have income from direct customers also, so it's alright. With direct customers, I get money directly. If it's 100 rupees, I get to keep it all with me. Swiggy would only give me 40 to 50 rupees. That goes towards petrol. But with a direct customer, some 30 rupees goes towards fuel and I'm left with 70 rupees. I have four customers like this.
1: Rino says that he can make relatively good money on the platform, but doing so requires long hours with the working day, stretching from 7am to 2am the next morning.
3: I have made good earnings, 40,000, 50,000. It depends on us. If we work from morning to evening, you can do 1,500 to 2,000 a day. If we only do evenings, we can get 600 to 700. To make 50,000 rupees, we have to work from 7 in the morning and work till 10am. Then there are not that many boys at that time since they would be tired from the night before. First shift folks meant to start at 7, come at 8. Second shift folks meant to come at 10, come at 11. But what I used to do is work early in the morning till 10. By then I would have earned 200 to 300 rupees. I come home to make brunch and have a wash. I'm ready to work again from 12 and I work till 4 and get another 300 rupees. So I have 600 to 700 by evening itself, then I come back, charge my phone and rest, then my shift starts at 7, so I get up at 6.30 in the evening, log in and work till 1 to 2 at night. I can make 1,800 or 2,000 comfortably in a day.
1: Vinod is a platform worker and so he bears all the responsibility and risk related to the costs he must take on. These costs are large and must be balanced against his ability to earn. This is particularly difficult for those migrating from rural areas to the city, as he found out himself.
3: Initially, it was very hard. Anyone who leaves their town and comes to the big city comes with no money of their own. They come with debt. I have to pay Rs. three thousand rupees rent for my room. Fifteen to twenty thousand as advance. Folks from town come with only three to two to three thousand rupees. Somehow I got a room, took my vehicle on loan. I had to pay 4,000 to the bank each month, 3,000 for my room, pay off another 5,000 of debt a month. Petrol costs 250 to 300 a day, and every 2000 to 3,000 kilometers, I need to pay 350 for an oil change. Somehow life keeps going.
1: Vinod is currently looking for new jobs and opportunities as he seeks to move away from depending on the platform for his whole income. At times, the platform has been a good source of income, but now he feels that it has changed to the point where he can no longer make a living as he struggles to balance increasing costs, longer delivery distances, and an overall decline in the number of jobs available.
3: If someone would ask me if they should join Swiggy, I'd say no, because they cheat a lot. Older IDs get paid 30 rupees for an order and newer ones just get 12 to 15 rupees. Now they can't earn and we can't earn. Only the company gains.
1: Thanks to Vinod for sharing his story. At Fair Work, we believe that all work can and should be characterized by fair pay, fair conditions, fair contracts, fair management and fair representation. Platforms ultimately have the power to improve standards and the ability to choose to. We're actively campaigning to improve the conditions for gig workers around the world and hold platforms to account. You can find out more at fair.work.
0: Thanks so much for Monica and Pradyumna Tadori for putting together that amazing worker story. As a means to provide some broader context, I caught up with the principal investigators for Fair Work India via video call earlier this week. Just a quick note, I messed up the recording a bit and my vocal clipped from time to time, unfortunately. But hopefully it's not too distracting. Fantastic. Um, so I think, yeah... Um, If you could just both start off by introducing yourself, um, that would be fantastic.
2: Okay, I'm uh, Balaji Bhartasarathy, and uh, I'm a professor at the International Institute of Information Technology in Bangalore. I'm also co-founder of the uh, Institute's Center for Information Technology and Public Policy. And uh, I'm the principal investigator of the
4: Fair Work uh, project uh, in India. Uh, I'm Janaki Shinovasan. Uh, I am also on the faculty at uh, IIIT Bangalore and I'm a co-investigator on the Fair Work project.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much. Um, and I wondered if we could just kind of start off our conversation just by briefly um if you could just kind of like briefly introduce us to kind of like the makeup of the gig economy in India, Um, what are the largest platforms that are in operation and kind of what are the kind of main sectors and the main kind of areas in which kind of those platforms cover um, and the way in which kind of the gig economy manifests in India itself? Okay.
2: So we don't really have a precise number on the either the number of platforms or the number of uh, platform workers in the country. Uh, We did a rough estimate in in Fair Work India last year, and we came up with a number. This was pre COVID uh, pre March or before March, uh, uh, 2020. And the number we came up with was something like around 5 million. Uh, And uh, the you know there are like quite a few sectors where the platform economy is uh, evident. By far the biggest is sort of ride-hailing, and the two sort of the big boys, if you will, are Ola and Uber. Uh, the the next sort of the largest is food delivery, and if you look at it nationally, you have uh, Swiggy and uh, Zomato. Uh, these guys, I mean, I think Ola and Uber employ upwards of a million workers have a, more than a million workers on their roads. In the case of Zomato and Swiggy, it is upwards of 200,000. And uh, of course, these, these uh, you know these are just the big four. You additionally have you know, local ride hailing and local sort of food delivery platforms that are in operation in, other, in, in various parts of the country.
0: Combined, these four companies provide work for upwards of 1.2 million people in India. But platforms also operate in a number of other sectors, such as domestic work, tradespeople, and e-commerce, alongside a number of online freelancing or cloud work platforms.
2: There are also other areas that are sort of slowly opening up, which are very fascinating, you know, uh, you know uh, uh, platforms that provide domestic help, uh, platforms that provide laundry services, moving services, etc. So you, what you're seeing is that initially, The platform economy in India was largely concentrated like in many other parts of the world in ride hailing and food delivery to some extent around e-commerce. But now you're seeing the increasing what you might call the platformization of other sectors of the economy and you're seeing the ripple effects of that.
0: So in the 2020 India report, you kind of like talk about um, kind of the emergence of Flipkart in 2007, which is like an e-commerce platform as kind of the moment when kind of the gig economy kind of arrived in India. And I kind of wanted to ask if you could kind of give us a kind of brief history of the gig economy in India since that moment. What are the kind of like, are there any key moments? Is there anything that's kind of happened within that time period that really kind of stands out for you as kind of defining the way in which um, the gig economy operates?
2: I think uh, uh I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, the arrival of or what's happened or, or the period between Flipkart's arrival here in India or Flipkart starting operation, it was originally an Indian company and now uh, has had any defining moments. I think uh, one was, of course, the pandemic, which led to a severe uh, sort of, you know, severe fluctuations in demand severe fluctuations in labor, et cetera. So that's been sort of a very sort of a noteworthy point. But other than that, I think, uh, in a sense, this was probably something waiting to happen in India, the whole uh, platform economy thing. Why? Because I think, like we highlight in our second year's report, there's a sort of a conjuncture of events that started to sort of come together in the first decade of this uh, centuries right on one hand you know for, for many for, for ever since Indian independence right I mean the uh, I mean the country has simply not generated enough jobs right for I mean to and has not been able to keep up with the expectations and you know with of, of, of young people right we have uh, a large segment of the population, uh, that works in what's usually called the informal sector, uh, where, you know, the, where you don't have any kind of necessarily have steady work, or even if you do have steady work, you don't necessarily have work that comes with any kind of benefit that you can actually fall back upon, like in a, in the, in the sort of the white collar environment. So you have had this for a very long time and that had not, you know, uh, that's been around for a long time. And, uh, here was something that came along and said, come, we'll give you work and, uh, you know, there's some predictability in the payout uh, to, you You know, every week, every 10, every two weeks, etc. Uh, you'll be paid. So in that sense, it was a, a welcome break from the kind of uh, informal or the sort of unpredictability that there was in, uh, in, the, in the work that many of these people did. The... And... The second thing, I think there are two or three other sort of less significant but equally important, or, or let's say the necessary conditions. There are other necessary conditions for this thing to actually take off. That is also the time in which uh, smartphones started to proliferate uh, in the country, right? And uh, today, India has like close to 950 million uh, mobile phones in the country give or take a few million about roughly an estimated about half a billion of them are actually smartphones and the country is home to some of the uh, you know most sort of low-cost smartphone manufacturers in the world and so that proliferation has uh, you know has made it easy for people to sort of quote-unquote plug into the digital highway if you might this sort of this or the information highway of course the uh, uh, the 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 mobile phone networks have grown, prices have fallen, in fact, the prices in India are among the lowest in the world. So you're able to sort of use these technologies at relatively low prices, relatively. Then also, uh, you know, you have to sort of acknowledge the fact that since most of these guys, I mean, except the Ola's and the Ubers are using two-wheelers mostly for delivery. Uh, it's important to note that India is yes, the largest two-wheeler market, motorized two-wheeler market in the world for scooters, motorcycles, etc. Right? And so you see, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's just a large number of two-wheeler uh, drivers around with armed with mobile phones, mostly, uh, you know, uh, if not unemployed, at least underemployed, uh, not sufficiently educated to be able to get into the more sort of lucrative segments of the economy. And were just eager to or eager for a break. And you know, here comes the platform economy, and you have the break. Now, the other thing that has also happened is why is it that the platforms have grown? So this is all on the supply side. On the demand side, the fact is that over the last few years you've had an enormous amount of venture capital flowing into the country. Right. And especially since the uh, in some sense the uh, the financial crisis in the in around 2000 2008. I mean, capitalists sought other uh, avenues, other locations to sort of invest in, and uh, Indian platforms uh, were uh, uh, presented an opportunity because you know you had a large customer base and so on. Never mind that the platforms haven't made a penny to this day. That's a separate issue altogether. But the venture capital has been coming, right? And they've been supporting the growth of this uh, growth of the platform uh, economy and so all this you know so the, you know I think to get back to the original point you know, the fact is that you have a large pool of labor relatively unemployed underemployed and uh, what many of them have been forced to do uh, instead of continuing to rely on relatively uh uh, you know, uh, on, on relatively sort of uh, meager wages in agriculture, which is also relatively, where uh, productivity is relatively low, they've uh, sort of left the farms, as it were, to look for opportunities in cities, right? And in the cities where you have uh, um certain segments of the uh, population which has has had this disposable income, they were the ones who were actually able to support the initial growth of the platform economy, which in turn was able to absorb some of the labour that was coming in.
0: But the possibilities and promises that platforms offered to workers quickly faded in the years following the emergence of the platform economy in India, as the rush of venture capital seeking out returns slowly dried up.
4: Uh, When we look at it from the worker side, um, for all the reasons that uh, Balaji mentioned, uh, people moved to cities. We have a lot of migrants who decided to take up platform work because it was so lucrative. Now, why was it lucrative? Uh, Part of it is, of course, what they could or could not make uh, uh, in their hometown. But part of it was also that through venture capital, there was a lot of incentives that these platforms were offering when they started come 2016-17, these incentives in most of these platforms were slashed very, very drastically. And it was since 2016 that we've been seeing a lot of strikes uh, by uh, workers in, say, ride-hailing platforms and also uh, food delivery platforms. And uh, this has been growing since 2016 till about 2019. And then, of course, the pandemic brought about its own set of... uh, issues around earnings, and that led to a a further set of strikes. But I just wanted to point out that this is also something that has been happening in terms of how workers feel about uh, uh, working in the platform economy and how that's become much more visible over the past few years.
0: I kind of wanted to ask a bit about kind of like, um, what is the kind of uh, the demographic, um, particularly thinking about kind of aspects of class, gender and class, um, in terms of, um, like, who is a gig worker? Who is your average gig worker in in India? Um, I wondered if you could describe a little bit about that.
4: Yeah, so uh, I was actually going to look at this the other way. Who is a gig worker? I think, to a certain extent, what Balaji was saying about them being migrants, I think that is an important characteristic, though, again, we don't have exact numbers on what percentage of platform workers are migrants. but um, it's becoming increasingly clear who are not gig workers or in what sectors uh, certain kinds of people are not gig workers. And gender is actually a very big factor here. So one of the things we've been seeing and I think uh, is widely reported is um, that there are very few women in uh, doing platform work. It depends, of course, on what sector we are talking about. For instance, they are uh, very low in number in uh, ride hailing and in food delivery.
0: Um, Balaji, do you have anything to add on that on that question as well?
2: Yeah, I, I think the uh, uncertainty is uh, sort of magnified by the fact that you have people going in and out of the platform economy. There are quite a few. See, uh, you know, who get in in order to meet short-term obligations. They might have loans to pay off. They might have those kinds of things that they need to do. So this becomes a supplemental activity for them, right? Uh, and therefore, uh, to be able to say with any uh, great deal of accuracy is, is probably uh, somewhat uh, difficult or, uh, or, or tricky, you know? And uh, so that's why I wouldn't sort of hazard a guess in terms of, saying who exactly is this person? We do know that it's it's, it's a largely male workforce, migrants, etc. And uh, though although it is true that there is a significant, uh, non trivial proportion that actually relies on gig work uh, for the as their primary you know, source of uh, income, you know, which is why the claim that these people are, are there you know, they can move in and out is also not altogether acceptable. Yes, it is true that that segment exists. You know, you find, for example, college students who might be wanting to make some pocket money or be break or, uh, you know, doing those sorts of things. But there's also a lot of people for whom this is the primary um, source of income. They're supporting families on that.
0: Yeah, completely. And I, I think it's interesting kind of like... Uh reading the report, there was one thing that kind of struck out to me, which is that on kind of a large number of the platforms, the majority of people were were working on the platform full time um, and I guess in the kind of in the u k context it's kind of like it feels often that there's a kind of a large number of workers who do use it for kind of um, as a part time income and but there's a huge number of people who are doing a huge amount of the work, the bulk of the work, and are entirely reliant, reliant on it from for their kind of income. And it's interesting thinking about the, the narratives that often platforms kind of weave is this idea that this isn't something which should be relied on full-time, and actually that it is for these people kind of tapping it into it as kind of like... Um, uh, as just a means of topping up their income, um, mm. and it's 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 interesting to think about how that actually plays out in practice, and kind of actually the way in which platforms do become a fundamental source of income for people, and that they rely on it to as you as you say to support their support their families and pay their rent.
2: Yeah, it also reflects uh, more broadly the lack of alternatives in a country, uh, especially in India, in a country like India, and uh, people are sort of. Uh, seeking, uh, you know, any you know, sort of clutching on to anything that they can get, and the platform economy offers some hope to them.
0: And I kind of just wanted to ask as well like, what do you kind of see as the future being for kind of like the platform economy in India? I mean, you've already referenced kind of the fact that we're seeing the platformization of different sectors um, and kind of more areas kind of going into that, but I wonder, like, What do you see as the broader future for um, gig work in India, and what kind of what are some of your hopes, and also what are your some of your concerns?
4: I think concerns and hopes uh, in terms of the organization of the platforms themselves, like I was mentioning, I think there's been a huge rise in subcontracting, which obviously then has consequences in terms of uh, the relationship between the platform company, the subcontractor and the worker. And uh, in my opinion, this is only going to grow. Uh, So how again do regulations and all the things that we say about fairness and working conditions, etc., how do they apply when there's a subcontracting relationship and how are they monitored? I think that is going to be very crucial to think about. Um, In terms of workers too, I think I already mentioned this, uh, I'm personally very interested to see how collectivization uh, continues to grow and evolve as we move forward. Um, And post-pandemic, how are some of the things that changed during the pandemic, whether it was reverse migration or layoffs with certain platforms, while other platforms hired more people? Uh, what is going to be the ultimate impact of some of these things that have quickly changed in the last couple of years? Uh, that remains to be seen, but definitely um, something that we should be concerned about.
2: Yeah, okay. So, you had said uh, concerns and hopes for the future, right, uh, Robbie? Yeah. Am I correct?
0: Yeah, concerns yeah. okay. And hopes. Yeah. Okay. You, I mean, you can. You don't have to do concerns and hope. You could just say if you're feeling in a particularly good mood, you could just say your hopes. But you know.
2: Okay. No, I have both. I have both. So uh, there is hope. Uh, and funda- I think it's. Uh, you, you know, in a in a country like India, anything that expands work opportunities, I think, at some level, should be welcomed. Right? We're not. I wouldn't take a smash the platform approach. Right? So I think this hope is that the platforms will continue to grow and offer opportunities to workers who are otherwise unable to find anything. That's my hope. Stops there. But having said that, there are a list of concerns that I must uh, list. The thing is, the first concern is that while expanding, the platforms you know, should not... I think the, the fundamentally what they're doing now is they're posing their uh, relationship to workers as though it were a zero-sum game. We can provide employment, but we can't employ them on certain terms. You know, for them, these two things don't go hand in hand. Now, essentially, they're saying we, will, we can only treat them this way. Otherwise, we don't get to function. Uh, the irony is the kind of treatment that the workers have been getting has been largely justified in terms of the lack of profitability of the platforms, which leads us to ask a very important question because many of these platforms are often sort of uh, run by sort of very, you know, people who to excellent business schools and that kind of stuff and, you know, great management, well-trained, etc. So... I mean, essentially, it's that inability of a small white-collar class that's unable to sort of generate or sort of organize this economy in certain ways that's able to generate the uh, uh, profitability or the surpluses that are necessary. So what happens? That that inability to do so actually uh, takes the toll, takes a toll on the workers. So then it becomes that's when it gets posed as though it were a zero-sum game. We can grow, we can do all these things, we can hire these guys, but uh, don't expect them, don't expect us to give them any better conditions because we can't afford them. Right? So that's one. I think the second thing that I think is a matter of concern for me, there, the we are having now the consolidation of labor laws into four courts. And one of the courts, the code on social security, explicitly mentions uh, gig workers. Okay but i think what is worrisome to me is the other platform other the other three codes make no mention and the other three codes you know one on occupational safety health and working conditions the code on wages and the code on industrial industrial relations all of which are important i think constituents of the larger sort of the labor uh, capital you know regulatory environment are silent on wages and industrial relations etc So, it seems to me that it has been very selectively applied. So, unless we are able to, I mean, to to some extent, we don't know what the effects will be because these laws, they have sort of passed through the parliament. They have not been operationalized yet. I think the government put them on hold. So, unless we see them in operation and see how the selective mention of the term gig worker or gig workers in just one of the courts, but not in the others, is going to Impact these workers is something you know. I mean, I really don't know uh, you know what it will mean, right? It's uh, is it uh, is it really going to bring about a change in the in the conditions of workers, right? And so these are uh, uh, this is the sort of the second concern that I have: how the law itself is sort of uh, going to be applied. okay We don't know. I mean, maybe it will turn out to be good. We don't know. that's a concern the third one is the uh, expanding scope of activity of these platforms like Janaki already mentioned you're already seeing mergers and acquisitions right of uh, platforms now the what drives these largely is the sort of you know you're seeing network externalities uh, kick in and some of these guys grabbing the smaller guys and sort of consolidating right now if that consolidation happens to a point where we, we have you know, uh, just barely a handful of platforms that are operating across multiple sectors, okay. then they start to become immensely, immensely powerful in terms of their ability to dictate certain conditions to workers, in terms of their ability to actually even probably even dictate terms and conditions to the government that is a a possible, uh, you know, that's an area of concern, right? In terms of what is, what will it mean in uh, terms of uh, their growth as, uh, you know, they take advantage of, you know, like I said earlier, enough network externalities kick in and uh, you start to see them increasingly encroach into other sectors and absorb other platforms and roll them under and we've already seen Uh, Example of those. So these are my three concerns. I mean, the seeing the uh, business as a zero-sum game, the selective mention of gig workers in the four ports, and finally the possible uh, dangers of network externalities creating these monster platforms that operate across uh, multiple uh, sectors. Even as I hope that the platforms will sort of uh, grow and sort of provide opportunities I don't think uh, one can ignore these uh, what I think are real dangers.
0: This episode was written and produced by Monica Niroconda, Pradyumna Tadori and Robbie Warren with music composed by Louis Bollet and additional composition by Robbie Warren. There's no episode in two weeks time because I'm on annual leave but we'll be back soon with the next episode of the Fair Work podcast.